0: The following audio is from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Acts is available at Actschurchleander.com.
1: All right, time to dive into God's Word. This will be the basis of our uh, message that Leon's going to give us today. So we invite you, if you have your Bibles, to open to John chapter 10. Uh, the words of the scripture will be on the screen. Uh, we are going to start in verse 7 and go through 26. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock.
0: ready to go? Okay, I'm just going to jump right into it just to save time and stop myself from rambling. All right, so here we go. We're in the Jesus Is series. Uh, we're going to go through John chapter 10 today. Um, and my title for this message today is The Art of the Storytelling, Part 2, The Art of Evoking. Um, and I entitled the message The Art of Storytelling, Part 2, as I'm, I'm basically staying on the same theme from the last sermon I preached a few weeks ago, not just because Chapter 10 in John is a, is a continuation of the dialogue in Chapter 8, uh, where I was in Part 1, but, but to be quite honest with you, I've, I've become fascinated with this concept of John's storytelling techniques, and now that I'm aware of it, I can't seem to not notice it when I'm reading the Scripture. So if I had seven more sermons, they would be called The Art of the Storytelling, Part 7, so forth. Anyway, I just need to say that in case that you were uh, here that week and then halfway through your sermon you're thinking, this sounds extremely familiar. Um, if you did miss Part 1 a few weeks ago, let me quickly summarize what I mean by the title, title of The Art of Storytelling because understanding it will be important for understanding the particular technique that I will be focusing on of John today. What I mean by the art of storytelling in the title is that John tells us at the end of his gospel that he did not tell us everything or every detail of what Jesus did in his ministry, meaning that his gospel is a strategic compilation. It is a finely tuned narrative of the evidence. He was deliberate in what stories, what moments, what words were included. And the precise way in which they were weaved together. This is evidence. This is historical fact. But this is theology-infused storytelling, art at its finest. And knowing and understand, understanding that is crucial for us modern readers to catch the subtle points being made in the narrative. So now moving on to this week's sermon to get into part two, the uh, the regarding the art of evoking and regarding the good shepherd. Now, I'll be honest with you, it would have been much easier to take this chapter I was given with its very relatable language and find a more allegorical way to, to talk to us modern hearers about Jesus being like a good shepherd to us in our lives. And even with shepherding being in the distant um, agricultural imagery of our culture, it still resonates with us to some degree. It is a very, it's very, relatable, it's a very relatable image and indeed one that God wisely and providentially has used in the Scripture However, when paying attention to the unique art of storytelling that John uses, you will note that that these I am phrases in John are not used as a simile. Jesus is not like a shepherd. He states he is the good shepherd. John is not simply choosing a relatable image to use as a metaphor to convey a character trait about Jesus to his immediate hearers. Rather, he shows Jesus deliberately evoking memories and feelings in his immediate hearers by using word, images, words, and titles connected to a pre-existing narrative. He's evoking. To evoke, what does that mean? The dictionary says it's a verb. It's um, to call cool up or produce memories or feelings. So to give a thoroughly text and illustration of the art of evoking, I I'd made a short scenario that you guys will have to follow along with me. Now, I realize in this scenario that I am—I will be making some extremely wide generalizations about all of my, um, all of about everyone about Texas in general. So forgive me. The rest of the world could relate to this if we can't. Um, but you live in Texas, so that's—I'm sure you'll be able to figure that out. So imagine me, with me, if you will, a very, very unlikely scenario but a horrifying scenario nonetheless. Just imagine, my fellow Texans, that say in 200 years from now that the rest of the known world, in a sad digression into radical secular humanism-infused socialism, finally gets fed up with our Second Amendment-loving, barbecue pit-smoking, ShinerBock drinking, God and country, freedom-loving, independent, lone star state, Texas spirit. And in unity, turns on us. And we are, and I said this is highly unlikely, but for the sake of the illustration, bear with me, we are taken captive. (laughs) Our barbecue pits are confiscated. I know, bear with me, bear with me. Our shotguns, our AR-15s, our revolvers, confiscated. Our big Ford and Chevy trucks, taken and melted into material for Toyota Toyota Priuses. (laughs) Our Yeti coolers, full of deer meat and Sharnabok, taken and recycled. The game of horseshoes, banned cowboy boots outlawed, and all of us enslaved, subjected, occupied by foreign West and East Coast troops, and driven into prison camps to a pitiful life of forced labor. And over time, as unlikely as it is, we slowly start to lose hope and remembrance of that Texas identity. And in the midst of this morbid settlement with enslavement, in the midst of that, One brave soul, in a moment of desperation, with his last remaining hope, steals a can of spray paint, climbs to a high place of visibility in the camp, knowing this will mean the end of his life. He starts to paint on a wall that all would be able to see. The commotion begins as he starts to spray paint words, as an army of guards rush to arrest him. He scrambles to finish, but the myriad of guards block the view of what he wrote the guards rush the man and tackle him down to drag him away. And as they drag him away, the crowd watching this whole tragic scene finally sees what he had spray-painted on the wall, an image of a cannon, and underneath it the words, come and take it. This would be the art of evoking. Using words and imagery, to call cool up or produce memories, feelings, drawing people back to the feelings associated with the original story in order to make a connection between the current event and the event in the past. Everyone with me? It appears that this is exactly what John's gospel is showing us that Jesus is doing in his dialogue with the Judeans with this shepherd language. He is using the art of evoking. But if we don't know the original story he's connecting to, we will be unable to see the devastating poignancy of his words and end up simply making flannel board illustrations of Jesus petting sheep. So how did I even come to this idea regarding the art of evoking, evoking when given this chapter? Well, I was primarily prompted because of something that stood out to me in verses 22 to 25 of chapter 10. It says this, It was the feast of dedication in the temple in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in Solomon's porch. The Judeans surrounded him. How much longer are you going to keep us in suspense, they asked. If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. I told you, replied Jesus, and you didn't believe. Tell us plainly. Stop beating around the bush. Just say it. This is what they're asking him. To which Jesus' only response is, I told you, and you didn't believe. So why does the reader want to immediately go back in the story a bit, flip a few pages back and see where Jesus says plainly that I am the Messiah? The thing is, he hasn't told them plainly as far as the exact linguistic format that they want. However, as we look deeper at our text, I believe that we will see he has indeed told them plainly, yet he has done it by the art of evoking so we're going to dive into this chapter and see three ways that Jesus did tell the Judeans who he was by using the art of evoking. And we will see in this, pa- in this uh, study, one, how he evoked by location and season. Secondly, how he evoked by title. And thirdly, how he evoked by signs. Now I'm going to take some creative liberty here and jump around a bit in the chapter rather than go in order just because there's a lot of things going on in the whole of chapter 10 And uh, I'm going to do it in in the order that we do best for making the point. So firstly, evoked by location and season. So listen to the questions from the Judeans to Jesus one more time in this moment. The Judeans surrounded him and said, How much longer are you going to keep us in suspense, they ask. If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. As we look at this pointed question from the Judeans, we have to pay attention to John's big flashing red, red arrow pointed at the text right before this question. Now, of course, your Bible doesn't have a physical big red flashing arrow saying, look here. However, the way John does this, the way, the way John does indeed paint a big flashing red arrow in the story is by an over-the-top amount of attention to detail, specifically regarding location location. And season. I note how much in this next reading, how much detail John gives to something that's seemingly insignificant. He says this It was the feast of the dedication in Jerusalem, it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in Solomon's porch. That's an immense amount of detail. Now, as we start to become more aware of the art of storytelling within John, we should look at that amount of detail in that sentence, and know that it's not there without reason. John is strategically selective and does not just waste words just because that's where this scene happened to take place and the season it happened to take place on. John is deliberately trying to tell us something important about the location, and he is painting a big red arrow and saying, important, important, pay attention, connect the dots, make the connection, see the significance of what's about to happen. So, let's get into this just a second. The Festival of Dedication. It's probably known better to most of us as, and I hope I'm pronouncing this right, uh, Hanukkah. It's the thing that the Jewish people do when we're celebrating Christmas. That's probably how we would know that. Let me just give you a little bit of detail about this this moment, though. Unlike the other Exodus-related feasts instructed by God, such as Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles, this particular celebration celebrates the victory of the Maccabean revolt against the oppressive Syrian ruler, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, in the years 167-160 BC. So about 160 years before Jesus is on the scene. And to summarize, without getting into all the movie-worthy historical detail we could explore, let me just summarize the key points to get to the point of what Jesus is evoking. You have in Israel's long, tragic history after David, you have these, these scenes of just digression. It just goes downhill after the, this, this, the, the empire is split, after David dies, and we have that long list of kings where they just do bad and bad and bad. It just gets worse, all the way to the day of Jesus. We have the Assyrian invasion where 10 of the 12, 12 tribes of Israel are defeated, resettled, and enslaved. The last two tribes that are left are taken later into the Babylonian exile where the temple is destroyed. This is where you get the book of Daniel and so forth. Then the Babylonians are taken over by the Medes and Persian army, which under the Persian king Cyrus, Judah as a tribe, is allowed to return to Jerusalem to restore their city. That's where you get the books of Nehemiah and Ezra. Then almost a century later comes the conquest of Alexander the Great with his Greek empire and his Hellenizing agenda. And now in the midst of that, after Alexander, he dies unexpectedly, and now his massive empire is split between the Hellenistic states, one of which would eventually end up in the hands of the leader of the Seleucid Empire, Antiochus, who owns that area of Egypt in in Jerusalem. Now, Antiochus had occupied the land of Israel and instituted a, a series of repressive measures designed basically to force the Jewish people to abandon their observance of Torah. It's kind of going back to my moment. It's, he's basically banning the cowboy boots, banning the country music, getting rid of Shinebock. That's what he's doing in a more, much more uh, sickening way, to be honest, if you read 1 Maccabees. His aim was that they give up the practice of circumcision and their, and their distinctive food laws and, all, and, so, and, and make them accommodate themselves to Hellenic culture. Antiochus is so cruel and torturously forceful, though, in his measure, that it rouses up a group of Jewish resistance fighters. And in a seven-year revolt led by Judas Maccabeus, against all odds, the Maccabeus army successfully defeats the imperial power, and they reclaim the temple and they rededicate it to the worship of the one true God of Israel." Thus, we get the the concept, I mean, we get the festival of dedication. It was a rededication of the temple after this victory. And they have a brief period of national independence. However, by the time we come to Jesus' day, this was only a nostalgic memory. It's kind of like, I just went blank of one of my favorite TV shows. Not that one, the other one. Zombies, come on, help me out, people. Walking Dead, yes. You know, in Walking Dead, there's always this great moment, you're happy, everyone's safe, and then it just lapses back again, and you've got to go through a whole other grueling episode of them being back enslaved. That's basically what happened with the Jewish people. There was this great moment after hundreds and hundreds of years of enslavement. They have a revolt, but then it just dies down again. And now, by the time we come to the New Testament, by the time we open the pages, we're 160 years from that time, and they're back under the oppression of Rome, and the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, and they have a puppet king, Herod. Meaning this, the celebration of Hanukkah, or the Feast of Dedication, under these circumstances would have been more than just a tradition. It would have been a sacred time when the Jewish people looked back nostalgically to a great victory. It was their Thermopylae. It was their Battle of Gonzales. And every year, under foreign and repressive rule, it would have fueled the hope of future liberation. It was a festival of revolution, a specific season where the messianic hope was heightened. And this is the day that the question that the Judeans asked Jesus arises. And then to further add fuel to the fire, note the detail of where John highlights that Jesus walked. Solomon's porch. Solomon, who had had most gloriously extended the scope of the ancient Israelite monarchy, Solomon, the son of David. So Jesus has simply, by choice of location of where he chose to stand, and on the day he chose to stand, evoked certain memories, stirring up images and incited passions connected to Israel's narrative. So it's not surprising that the Pharisees, in this particular season and location, in the buildup of suspense, asked the question outright. How much longer are you going to keep us in suspense? They asked. If you are the Messiah, just tell us plainly. Jesus strategically, purposefully provoked the question. He deliberately added fuel to the fire. His questioners really, what they want is another Judas Maccabean. They are wanting, they are waiting on the Davidic King of Promise to rise up and lead a final revolt against their Roman oppressors. They are ready for a war general, but he just won't speak the way they want him to, the way they had expected. He won't tell them plainly. Rather, he just says, I told you and you didn't believe. So now we need to go back a bit and see what Jesus could have said that would justify him answering in regards to this question of his messianic identity that he said he already told them, which brings me to my second point evoked by title. I am the Good Shepherd. We must understand that Jesus does not just pull this title of the Good Shepherd out of thin air because it happened to be a good practical and culturally rel- uh, relatable title at, the hand, at hand for describing the way he was. This title of the Good Shepherd would have immediately evoked passionate feelings and memories for those within Israel with ears to hear both feelings of hope to some, but prominently feelings of strong and significant rebuke and challenge of authority to the, leaders, to, uh, to the leaders to whom he was dialoguing with. This was a dangerous and controversial title to take upon himself. If we went back a little bit, we will see that this whole shepherding imagery comes up in the middle of controversy with the Pharisees who are offended by his healing of a blind man on a Sabbath and then his statement regarding them being blind themselves. Let's just back up a little bit to John 9, right before we get into the shepherd language, to see what I'm saying. "'I came into this world for judgment,' said Jesus, "'so that those who can't see would see, "'and those who can see would become blind. "'Some of the Pharisees were nearby, and they heard this. "'So,' they said, "'we're blind too, are we?' "'If you were blind,' replied Jesus, "'you wouldn't be guilty of sin.' But now because you say we can we can see your sin remains. I'm telling you the solemn truth said Jesus, anyone who doesn't come into the sheepfold by the gate but gets in some other way is a thief and a brigand. But the one who comes in through the gate is the sheep's own shepherd. That's the way this whole shepherding imagery starts. That is the immediate context in which he eventually says I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd is said in contrast, contrast, sorry, after two parables regarding those coming before him being nothing but servants and thieves. This title of the Good Shepherd echoes back to Israel's long narrative. It is the language of the prophets. In the midst of Israel's decay in the Babylonian captivity, the God of Israel gave Ezekiel the following to speak. And here in this, the echoes of Jesus. Son of man, Ezekiel says, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel prophesy and you must say to them, to the shepherds, thus says the Lord Yahweh, woe to the shepherds of Israel who are feeding themselves. Must not the shepherds feed the, sh- the, sh- uh, the flock? The fat you eat and you clothe yourself with wool, the well-nourished animals you slaughter, but you do not feed the flock. The weak you have not strengthened and the sick you have not healed. And with respect to the hurt, you have not bound them up. And you have not brought back the scattered and you have not sought the lost, but rather you ruled over them with force and with ruthlessness. And they were scattered without a shepherd and they were as food for all the animals of the field when they were scattered. My flock went astray among all the mountains and on every high hill. And so upon the surface of the, the world, my flock was scattered and there was no one seeking them and there was no one searching for them. Therefore, our shepherds, the, hear the word of Yahweh, as I live, declares the Lord Yahweh, surely because my flock have become as plunder, and my flock became as food to the animals of the field, since there was not a shepherd, since my shepherds have not, my, have not sought my flock, but the shepherds fed themselves, and they fed not my flock. Therefore, O shepherds, hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Look, I am against the shepherds, and I will seek my flock from their hand, and I will put an end to them from shepherding flocks, and shepherds will no longer feed themselves, and I will deliver my flocks from their mouth, so they will not be as food for them. The shepherding language and imagery here was a direct rebuke to the leadership of Israel. And he was responding to the, He was responding to those are the images that it would have evoked. The Pharisees were not sitting there when he said, I am the good shepherd and thinking of Jesus petting sheep like we had at Sunday school and the, you know, the illustrations of him with small children. Not that he didn't do that, but that's not what they were hearing. What they were hearing was, he's, he, in the words of William Wallace, I'm going to pick a fight. That's what they heard. They heard a rebuke of leadership. This would be like somebody famous on TV making a stab at a presidential lecture or something. This is the kind of feel that was happening. Yet at the same time, that title and Jesus' actions would have evoked in certain people, in the downtrodden, those hanging on to hope in Israel under the oppression of both Rome and their own corrupt leaders. They would have heard the language of their God. They would have heard the language of Yahweh. So we must also hear in God, in the God of Israel's rebuke of the leaders, the passionate protecting and shepherding language for his people. As the people stood and watched this debate of this single man, that was, of, of this one single man was having with the leaders of the nation, it no doubt must have evoked in them the language of their God. In the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel later, he also says this, for thus says the Lord Yahweh, look, I even I, I will seek my flock and I will look after them. Just like the caring of a shepherd for his herd on the day when he is in the midst of his scattered flock, thus I will look after my flock and I will deliver them from all the places to which they have scattered on the day of storms and stress. And I will bring them out from the peoples and I will gather them from the countries and I will bring them to their soil and I will feed them on mountains of Israel in the valleys, and in the settlements of all the land. I will feed them in good pasture, and their pasture will be on the mountains of the heights of Israel. And they will lie down in good pasture, and on a lush pasture they will feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will feed my flock, and I myself will allow them to lie down, declares the Lord Yahweh. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the scattered, and I will bind up the one hurt, and I will strengthen the sick, and the fat and the strong I will destroy." and I will feed her with justice. This language of Ezekiel brings me to my third and final point, that Jesus evoked by signs. At the end of this whole passage in John chapter 10, the Pharisees, after all the Pharisees still unbelief, unbelief that even after all that Jesus has evoked, he makes one final appeal to them. He says this, If I'm not doing the works of my Father, don't believe me. But if I am doing them well, even if you don't believe me, believe the works. That way you will know and grasp that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. What signs has Jesus been doing? What signs is he he referencing that would attest to him being the Messiah, the king that they were waiting for? Again, we have to go back to the original narrative. Listen to the source of the echoes we read later in the Gospels. Listen to the passage I just read, listen to what Yahweh is speaking through the prophet of Ezekiel to the leaders of Israel. And listen and listen, I want you, as you listen, I want you to, to see now on this day, who it prefigures to you. Listen to what Yahweh says to Ezekiel, "Must not the shepherds feed the flock, the fat you eat and the clothe yourself with the wool, the well-nourished animals you slaughter, but you did not feed the flock. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick." You have not healed, and with respect to the hurt, you have not bound them up. You have not brought back the scattered, and you have not sought the lost, but rather you ruled over them with force and ruthlessness. Now, recall with me, Jesus sees 5,000 men coming to him and gets concerned about feeding them. He takes five barley loaves and two fish, he has them sit down on a grass mountain in Israel, and somehow, Feeds them all. He heals an official son. He heals the man at the pool of Bethsaida. He gives sight to a blind man. He is feeding the flock, strengthening the weak, gathering back the scattered of Israel. He is seeking the lost, those the rulers had written off. He is healing the sick, binding up the wounded. He is doing all the things that the God of Israel rebuked the leaders of Israel for not doing. The works he does are not random benevolent acts. They are signs evoking the language from the long narrative of Israel so that they would know and grasp that the Father is in him and he was in the Father. They were to see those moments and say to themselves, this is the God of Israel. Many people say that there's no if Jesus doesn't say, I am God, I am Israel, they don't see anything. But you see, if we don't know the narrative, if we don't see the images, we won't, we'll be defending that the, the Jesus was in fact divine, Jesus was in fact divine. It's already there, but it's secretly in the narrative. Jesus has answered the Judeans' question in regards to whether he was the Messiah, but in the way he has said it, he has evoked so much more. In conclusion, however... However, you notice something. He will not just say it plainly. And John, in, this, in his architecture of the narrative, lets us as readers see that fact very clearly, that he, won't say it, that he won't say it plainly. In fact, John deliberately brings attention to the fact that Jesus won't say it clearly. The question is, why? And that brings me to my conclusion and the mystery among all these facts I've given you, the mystery that speaks to us here today. I am realizing that more and more that John, and I assume all the gospel writers, are presenting the gospels as a message believed despite the fact of extensive reasons not to believe. Meaning they are, pre- they are presented as a contrast from start to finish of the irony of those who should or can see or believe. Those who are his own are shown as not seeing, but some And others outside the fold, in fact, do see and believe. Of being asked for a clear and direct answer, but not being given anything but illusion and echo and parable. The question is, why are they presented this way? Why not just be direct? Why isn't the Bible just outspoken and here's God, he came on this day and this is what you need to do. And here's the theology sermon and here's here's everything you need and here's how to do communion and here's how to do worship. And why isn't it just clear Why why does it leave us any mystery and doubt so that we can all sit here and puzzle and debate and have to write commentaries? Why isn't it just plain? It's not the genre of the gospel itself, as if just mystery-like literature. Rather, the genre genre of of the gospels is historical, biographical narrative and highlighting within itself the strangeness of the method used by its main character. Not part of it itself. What I mean by that is, the Bible isn't like the Gnostics. It's not a mystery, so you can sit there and guess magic numbers and, and all that nonsense that we have done for years. It, it's not. It's a plain historical narrative. But within it, it's deliberately showing you Jesus spoke in mystery. What is this contrast supposed to convey to us readers? The whole scenario we began today came in, started with this sentence I came into the world for judgment, said Jesus, so that those who can't see would see, and those who can see would become blind. He then goes into all this concept of the sheep hearing his voice. But the Pharisees, seeking the coming Messiah, more than that, don't hear his voice. But he says this strange line I have other sheep too, which don't belong to this sheepfold. I must bring them to, and they will hear my voice. I'm going to skip ahead here because we're running out of time, but let me just wrap this up by getting to the point I'm trying to bring to today. As foreign as we who sit in this room, here, as foreign as this story is to we who sit in this room today are to this narrative, something in the story of Jesus evokes something in us from those, from academic depth of insight. To someone straight off the street that hears a simple gospel message, it evokes some response in us. We hear in the message somehow the voice of a true shepherd, the voice of a real king. We hear in the message somehow the voice of the God of Israel calling to us who knew him not. His sheep hear his voice. Over 2,000 years of confusion and scrutiny over this story, its documents, its translation, corruptions and battles, heresies followed by creeds, new scientific data arising, new skepticism, cultural and questions and millions of reasons for skepticism, and abandonment of this confusion, yet educated, uneducated, Westerners, Easterners growing up in church, having no experience at all, those rebelling from man-made corruptions in its name, those regarding theology as a Western comfort, and then those persecuted in the church in the East under threat of death. From every walk of life, from every nation, his sheep hear his voice, and they follow. We are about to take communion in a moment, and we normally start with this moment of silence. And I know that we often use this time for reflection and for confession of personal sin, and those are no doubt essential But I really feel today that it might be good for us to just close our eyes and reflect again upon the wonder in case we have slowly forgot that we are all here, all of us, because in some way we heard the voice of the shepherd. We recognize the sound of his voice in the story somewhere along the way, and we must keep listening to his voice lest we stray and become strangers. Come today and partake of that which evokes the image of the true shepherd, that saw the wolf coming for his sheep, but did not run, but gave his life for the sake of his sheep. Come and partake of that which makes us all one. There is one flock, and there is one shepherd. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at actschurchleander.com.